Hey there, welcome back to Break Quarter, guys. The, li- the show where the lines between freight, finance, and tech are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, alongside lead economist Anthony Smith once again. We've got an awesome show. We're going to have Henry Byers, our maritime expert here at FreightWaves. Somehow, I've gone uh, a year and a half running the show, haven't had Henry on yet. So this will be his Great Quarter Guys debut. We're going to talk about, of course, Home Depot and their decision to charter their own boat. We're going to talk about Yantian, the port that's just under crazy pressure uh, in China and a lot of Chinese ports in general. Talk about what the impact is to the U.S. side of, uh, of of the ocean. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of information from Henry there. Uh, We've also got a couple you care or Nas. We've got the good, the bad, the Anthony back for a return uh, this week and a couple of charts of the week. And we're going to get right to that after I thank my sponsor. DDC FPO. This episode is brought to you by DDC FPO. DDC is a business process outsourcing provider that specializes in freight, perhaps known best for freight billing. DDC recently launched IT outsourcing to help supply chain stakeholders hit development milestones without risking financial performance. Learn more at ddcfpo.com. All right, Mr. Smith, we've got two charts of the day. I will let you run with yours first. They're both quasi-retail. We got the retail sales data this morning, so we have some of that updated. We're going to dive into that for a moment after charts, but show me what you got. All right. So, and of course, thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. (laughs) Always, always welcome. So when we look at the first one, we have retail sales, non-store retailers up against van outbound tender volume index. And so in this first chart, we're going to look at here in the blue line, of course, our VOTVI. And in the orange, we have retail sales for non-store retailers. So the uh, actual new retail sales report from the Census Bureau came out this morning, showing an overall downward movement of 1.3%. I saw many outlets surprised. Um, I don't think they were surprised at the decline, but maybe the amount of that mm-hmm. it declined by. I don't think there was not too much surprise on my end, mainly because there was. I was surprised that it remained that high for back-to-back months, especially since there was a lack of stimulus checks going out. So I think the real test is going to be after this month, because this month we have, um, we have of course, Amazon Prime Day coming up at the end of the month. So that's going to keep, I think, some retail sales and overall volumes bumped up or elevated a little bit with those van volumes and overall non-store retailers or e-commerce overall. But we're looking at after Prime Day, we're going to look at what's going on with other outlets. So maybe there's going to be a Targets, Best Buy, things like that, that might pill, spill into July. And maybe that will give some upward momentum to the July report. Um, but overall, after this month, I think we're really going to see what type of stamina these consumers have. We know that they're real positioned with those, um, you know, households between 50, 100,000 with a higher savings rate, um, with increased wages, increased employment uh, availability. We saw the all-time quit rate overall quit rate at near all-time high. So there's a lot of confidence going on right now. So those consumers are in a better position, but it's going to be interesting to see if they maintain that stamina and if we can kind of see those elevated. We are expecting more elevated freight volumes, but just to see how much is going to come from that retail segment. Yeah, I think that is the best word to use for it is stamina, right? They've got the money. They have everything to do it. It's whether they want to choose to keep spending on goods or spend on services, which is what we saw a lot of in this latest report. You know, you look at um, 
<clears throat> airline spending, it's still down about 20, 25% over or below 2019. But if you look at restaurant spending, up double digits, lodging up 16% over 2019. People are spending on services. Uh, and, you know, we have Prime Day coming up. With, I think we're going to have a really big back to school season just yeah. with Prime Day kind of leading the way into it. And as you said, Best Buy, Kohl's, everybody trying to compete with that. It just creates a retail environment where there's going to be a lot of deals and there's going to be uh, some, some good sales for sure. All right. Uh, my quick one for you, chart of the day. This one is from Bank of America. This is comparing uh, existing home sales. So this is the seasonally adjusted annual rate uh, in millions in dark blue. And then in light blue, we have the Bank of America card spending on furniture or at furniture stores rather. So uh, the, the takeaway here is that it is highly correlated as pretty logical understanding there, right? That furniture sales would be very highly correlated with existing home sales. But uh, as you can also see in 2020, furniture homes, furniture sales were up 20, 30% throughout 2020 and started even higher in 2021, but they're trending down where we are. I, I had been, <laughs> it's not that I'm waiting to see this to celebrate it or anything, but I've just been waiting to see it because it had to happen. Uh, this furniture spending, this home improvement spending, it has to come down eventually because it can't run at 50% over the two year average forever. Uh, we just can't improve our homes that much. But the, the takeaway here is that if we continue to see new home sales or existing home sales decline, likely to see that furniture come down in line with it as well. So we'll, we'll keep up with that um, moving forward. Okay, let's take a uh, let's just jump on to you care or not. Nah. We kind of covered uh, retail uh, sales there. So let's go on to you care or not. Nah. The first one is also came from that same report, but this one is on the producer prices side. They rose at the fastest annual clip in nearly 11 years. It is in May, so we're lapping over last May when prices did fall, so keep that in mind. But inflation continued to build in the U.S. The Labor Department reported this morning. The 6.6% surge is the biggest 12-month rise in final demand index since the BLS began tracking it in November 2010. Anthony, you care or not about producer prices rising this fast? I do care because we also saw CPI rise as well. I think it was right around 5% year-over-year. But as you mentioned, got to be cognizant of that year-over-year comparison. So I think this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. And we've seen those producer prices increase, especially with the ISM PMI. We're looking at manufacturing. We've seen 12 months of increased prices overall, especially going to be tied to commodities and things like that. But those prices have been felt for or by them and incurred by them for 12 months. And so I think this might just be the tip of the iceberg as it starts to make its way to the consumers. But interesting enough, I don't think the consumers care all that much. I think they're in a good position. I care about this number. I just think it's the tip of the iceberg, and there's going to be more to come downstream. Yeah, uh, the elasticity of demand definitely expands when you get free money from the government, <laughs> uh, I got to say. But, you know, that, that, will eventually, that is going to run out. It has run out. Uh, so these things, if this keeps going on, the big, the big number that I wanted to point to here is that I definitely care. I don't care so much about the year-over-year comp because it's just it's not really fair to do right now. Right. And even the month-over-month comp is not a great comp to give us, you know, true um, long-term projection. But 0.8% month-over-month sequential growth, that is... You know, if that continues, that's kind of scary. Right. Something we need to keep our mind on for sure. Okay, number two. This one is on Chewy, everybody's favorite uh, online pet retailer. Out of stocks issued, or out of stock issues resulted in Chewy experiencing an estimated $40 million in missed sales in the first quarter. CEO Sumit Singh said on the earnings call last week. What do you think? You care or not about Chewy missing $40 million in sales? I don't. I don't. And I, I think, um, unfortunately, consumers don't either. And it's, of course, it's going to be one of those things that COVID has just really exposed. And one of the things one of my economic mentors says, one of those re- recession-proof industries are going to be pets because people care about their pets. They're going to buy things for their pets, whether it's good, times are bad. Maybe they might not buy as many those extra, you know, chewy toys yeah, or right. like that, but they're going to be in the pet market overall. 
unfortunately, I don't think consumers care too much. They're going to be tired. They don't care. They, they just want their stuff. And so they're going to move on to another uh, right. proprietor. And so once you kind of acquire those customers, then they're going to kind of flow to wherever the goods are. I don't think maybe they don't have that customer base or that customer loyalty. Maybe they do have that. But I, I think we're getting to a part as we kind of tail off the end of this pandemic that people aren't going to care about the difficulties. They're just going to want their stuff. They're going to want it now. They're going to want their services. And I think these shippers, these outlets are going to be in a really tough position. Yeah, I mean, that's your thing, right, is that uh, everybody offers free shipping. Everybody's yeah. gonna, everybody can get it there in two days. You go to Walmart, Target, Tractor Supply, Amazon, pretty much everywhere you can get the same dog food you're going to get on Chewy uh, right then, similar prices, same delivery fee. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. The switching yeah. costs are absolutely none uh, when it comes to this. I also don't care about this simply that $40 million for Chewy is actually not that much anymore. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. they did $2 billion in sales in the first quarter. So, uh, 40 million, you know, less than 2% of sales. And apparently this is very uh, limited to fresh pet food. That's yeah. like the one thing that they cannot keep in stock. And apparently everybody's having trouble. PetSmart, Petco also have mentioned this as having difficulty keeping it in stock. So no, I'm not, I'm not too worried about this for Chewy. All right, last one. This one's on Netflix. I found this quite interesting and a long time coming. Probably should have been here a long time ago. They're going to take a page out of Walt Disney and they are launching an online store to sell limited edition apparel, lifestyle merchandise, and collectibles from its extensive catalog of shows and movies. The site marks the world's largest streaming service's first entry into direct consumer retail sales. What do you think? You care or no? No, I'm more confused by it. Yeah, really? <laughs> I'm more confused by it. I, I understand like you said, taking a page out of Walt Disney. But I, it's going to be an interesting move for Netflix. I, I don't see myself... Popping maybe, into the Netflix store in I Times Square. Exactly. Yeah. But maybe that I'm just an isolated consumer. I can't speak for all Americans, so I'm sure there's going to be some activity there. But I, I don't Is really, Netflix your fam- favorite streaming platform? It, it goes in waves. So okay. sometimes when I'm, I'm, I went through that whole streaming platform thing throughout 2020, I was just like, you know what? Who has... like who has the sauce right now? Who's yeah. really hot right now? And Netflix came in hot, leading the way with Tiger King. Yeah, they really the kicked off dance. the pandemic with yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> but now it's been HBO has been coming off really strong. HBO has been awesome. <clears throat> I, uh, I, do, I do like this one. One, because Disney sells a lot of stuff. And they made yeah. like $4 billion on licensing, merchandising. I think about a billion and a half of that came directly from their sales or from their stores. They got like, a, actually, they have like 300 stores. They got quite a few of them. So I don't think uh, Netflix is going to be opening up a bunch of stores anytime soon. Maybe they'll open up a few kind of experiential things. But they have a great lineup of shows that they can sell. I mean, you know, you see your Stranger Things t-shirts at at Target or whatever, but there's so much more they can do. Funko Pops, I'm imagining the whole thing. And I think there's a lot of money to be made from it. And I'm I'm a Netflix shareholder, disclosure. So, (laughs) yes, I like the move. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's hold on to the home purchase sentiment index. We'll do that at the end, the good, the bad, and the Anthony. Let's go ahead and bring on Mr. Henry Byers, our maritime expert here at Freightwaves. We are going to do buy or sell with Henry. Henry, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, glad to be here, guys. How are you? Uh, we are fabulous. All right. First one I've got for you. This is from our, our very favorite and friend of the show, Steve Ferreira. He said, we haven't seen the worst of it. $20,000 per FEU all-in rates to the East Coast are coming. You buying or selling? I'm buying. Absolutely. I think the pressures, uh, you know, mostly on the supply side, it just continues to deteriorate. The conditions do. And I think demand will remain high enough, especially going into the peak season that uh, we're likely to push, you know, likely to double from where rates are today. Wow. Uh, I'm going to, and I'm, I'm going to say that I built these by ourselves uh, solely for Henry because if it was me and Anthony up here pontificating. It would be, you know, from, from, you know, where, so let's get, let's leave these to Henry. Uh, I got another one for you. 
This one is from Lorianne LaRocco. She spoke to John Monroe of Monroe Consulting. She told Lorianne this last, last week. He told Lorianne last week that the congestion at Yantian and the ripple effects on the alternate port destinations have snarled trade worse than the Suez blockage. Buy or sell? Buying, absolutely. The importance of Yantian cannot be underestimated for U.S. imports. Um, it, it, it's grown substantially in, in year to date. It's doing approximately around 500,000 TEUs more um, than, it, than the next closest port, which is Shanghai. Um, it, it's incredibly important for U.S. importers. And I think that the fact that those vessels are calling between Yanchen, Long Beach, Los Angeles, and Oakland, uh, which are also quite backed up, I think uh, we, we've yet to see the worst. Henry, give us uh, give us some insight on how big Yanchen is, because I didn't realize that we don't have anything near this big, I think, here in the U.S. So just talk to me about how big this is. Give us some color and comparison so we can get it, get an idea for it. Well, some, some people joke, you know, 30, 30 years ago, it was like a small fishing village uh, right next to Hong Kong, Hong Kong. Um, dominated in terms of trade, uh, but really, you know, the the advent of, and you know, the way China's grown, uh, really, you know, especially in the 21st century, uh, it's become one of the primary ports for China. Uh, Guangzhou, which is the the general region there, um, and Shenzhen, you know, is, is uh, claims to be like the number one artificial intelligence hub in the entire world. So the fact that that Southeast China, you know, right there, um, you know. On the mainland side, across from Hong Kong, um, has just grown so much. It's just continued to get more important over time, and, and again, has taken that number one spot away from you know ports like Shanghai, uh, which, which used to dominate that lane. So, so really, over the last five years, um, you know, it's grown substantially, and, and like I say, year to date, even um, you know, it's doing about five hundred thousand TEU, TEUs more than than Shanghai, which is you know quite significant. And that's TEUs for, you know, U.S. imports. So, Henry, given this congestion here in Yanchen, do you think this kind of, so you also mentioned that China has just grown uh, massively over the last 30 years, but, and, and they're and they're built for this, you know, they're built for being one of the, the world's leader in manufacturing, things like that. But do you think this pushes the emphasis or the movement for other, um, you know, act, or increase activity for other Southeast Asian countries um, to really kind of ramp up activity. I know they pale in comparison, and it's not even there. But do you think this kind of moves that forward at all? I think it does. I think you know just the tensions, you know, with the trade war during the Trump administration, and just the the ongoing tensions it seems that are likely to persist with China. I think you know the U.S. importers are certainly you know the demand will be there for other Southeast Asian countries to kind of pick up that slack, you know, with cheaper labor options, um, as well as, uh, you know, uh, country of origin, manufacturing and sourcing capabilities. Uh, the problem really is the fact that China just, the way that it can invest in infrastructure and mobilize its people. Uh, I think during COVID, you probably saw those clips of them building hospitals in, in a few days. I think the way that they can build infrastructure and scale infrastructure is really uh, unrivaled in Southeast Asia. Um, so there, there's not likely to be, you know, one option. It's likely going to be a number of different countries, which you're kind of seeing, you know, uh, Vietnam for furniture, things like that. Um, certainly picking up a lot of slack, but, um, I think, you know, countries like Indonesia, uh, Malaysia are also going to be, you know, effective options. And then, and then you're likely to see a lot of companies, you know, try to come closer to home. Um, I think as automation kind of gets, you know, further down the road, AI, um, gets further down the road, I think you will see. Uh, near sourcing or, or sourcing a little bit closer to home, maybe in places like Mexico. Um, so you don't have these, you know, you kind of 
de-risk your supply chain from encountering these kind of risks. Henry, I'm glad you mentioned infrastructure because I think back to this, I think this was right before the pandemic. I saw this video from like a street corner of this eight lane, about half mile long uh, bridge that needed to be repaved. And they didn't even shut the lane down. They were done in 72 hours. The video, it looks like robots. It's absolutely amazing. They had five or six shifts of hundreds and hundreds of workers coming in. And I think here in Chattanooga, I'm looking right here at Highway 27, <laughs> and I was here in 2014, and they said they were going to be done in 2018. They just got done here in 2021. Took them six years to add two extra lanes to this thing. So it's ridiculous. But let's, let's bring it closer to home here with Home Depot, because I think uh, this is a really interesting story. I'm sure you have a lot of takes. I'll just open it up. What are your takes on uh, Home Depot chartering its own boat? It's certainly a bold move. Um, I think it speaks, you know, I agree with Greg Miller's article about it being a truly an ominous sign. I think with the port congestion, especially in places like Oakland, that really this is one of the first times that we've seen such a massive traffic jam of ships on multiple ports within, you know, a service routing that, that vessels ultimately, um, you know, will call Los Angeles or, or Long Beach and, and travel up to Oakland. So all three of those ports being congested, um, I think it just, and it's likely to get worse because now you have what's going on in Yanchen. Um, I think for Home Depot, they're they're really thinking about the risk of not having cargo get here for the holiday retail season, which is just enormous for U.S. retailers. Um, and the reason I say it's an ominous sign is because for them to go out and do that, uh, something that really largely has not not really been done before by a you know a shipper. It has by by forwarders. There's been you know forwarders in Europe who've chartered ships from. East Asia to Europe um, during the you know latter half of, of uh, 2020 and, and this year even, uh, but for a U.S. importer to go out and do that, I think it certainly you know paints a picture of, of how just how ominous things are, and it's certainly a bold move. All right, Henry, you said it's a bold move. Let me put a little pressure. Is it a good move? It's yet to be seen. I think it. If I had to say right now, I think it is. Honestly, I think just having that on backup. Um, gives you a little more certainty that you know there's a lot of things you're going to have to battle with. There's a container shortage. There, the ports are already congested. Um, you know, there's there's you know what if something happens from a labor perspective? Um, another you know COVID resurgence. There's a lot of things that can happen, but I think having that as an option, um, you know, at least gives you a little bit of leeway as far as how you can flex. And I think right now, the more adaptable, the more um, flexible your supply chain is, the better. So I will say, I do think um, ultimately it will be a good move, even if it doesn't materialize and they actually have to use it. Having it on backup um, or just having your hands on it, um, you know, I think will ultimately be, be a good move for them. So, Henry, one of the things that I was chatting with Andrew about earlier this morning was whether or not you think or we see other retailers or other shippers falling suit and doing something similar like this. Do you think this is something that other retailers or other shippers are going to kind of take note of and follow suit? I think so. I think so. I think just, just having that be, be out there um, and be reported on by the media, so, some shippers are certainly taking note. And I think the importance of this holiday retail season uh, cannot be underestimated as well. You know, there's, there's, there's certain size shippers that aren't top 100 importers that maybe don't have that size. What you could ultimately see is, is a number of those, um, in the same sector coming together and, and potentially doing something similar. But, but like I say, having that, that secured space, having that guaranteed space, even if that vessel has to wait in line, I think uh, ultimately it will likely pay off just because of how bad, from all the data uh, points we're looking at, like within Sonar, um, it just, everything's telling us it's likely to get worse before it gets better. 
Um, so I do think you will see at least one, maybe two more, or a group come together um, and do it kind of like a sector-based uh, ship or, or kind of like a you know co co-sharing uh, of space. Henry, so you um, you mentioned that you know the difficulty and congestion and difficulty with containers, right? They're still short. It's kind of analogous to me, at least, to new truck orders right now. You have all these. People, you have all these carriers going out and buying new trucks, but you might not even have drivers to seat them the same way you might not have containers to fill your ship. Uh, I did want to touch on, you know, that the thing here, that that co-op idea, because that's a really interesting idea. Something I had thought about is like Target and Walmart coming together to, you know, to pair up for transportation. You know, do you think that, I guess you said it's possible, but that would be them overlooking their uh, their enemy, their competition, just because these transportation issues are bigger than that at this point, right? Well, I think Target and Walmart are a little bit different than, say, you know, um, your your importers that fall within like the, the top, you know, 500 that, that are outside the top 100. You know, Target and Walmart have an enormous amount of buying power. And I think you've seen some of the posts. Um, I think Jason Miller is posting about the the power dynamics in ocean shipping, uh, amongst, especially amongst the top 100 and how much more concentrated, you know, the buying power is within even that top 10, which certainly... Target and Walmart fall within that that category. So, so those two, um, I think you're right. I don't think you'll see it across, um, you know, those two specifically. I think what you could see um, is some of the, the you know, 200 to, to 500, you know, if, if they're in that category coming together. Because you have the National Retail Federation. You, oh, there's there's shipping associations where they essentially toy manufacturers, um, you know. Uh, whether it be toys or another sector, they come together and they, they use their buying power in terms of volume to get better rates on a service contract from an ocean carrier. Uh, that's very similar in my, in my uh, opinion. You know, you basically are just bringing that buying power together and, and using it to, you know, go out and, and source a completely new boat as, a, as opposed to sourcing space on an existing boat. So, Henry, when we were sharing an office here in Chattanooga Freight Alley, one thing that happened was we would get into these conversations and really is almost like, why is no one talking about this? And you've had many calls in the past that I can recount that you would say, hey, why is no one talking about this? This is going to be huge. You need to kind of keep this on the radar. Is there anything like that that you see now that people just aren't talking about that you think should really be noted? The, the situation in Oakland, in my opinion, is dire. Um, I was just clicking on random ships up there just to... Just to see, you know, uh, if I click on a random ship, how long has it been waiting there? And, and every time I clicked on one, it seemed like it had, it had departed Los Angeles or Long Beach in uh, at the end of May, like May 25th. Um, still hadn't called the Port of Oakland. It doesn't even have an updated ETA for Oakland. Um, and that's just one of, you know, 30 to 35 ships, container ships specifically, uh, that are up there waiting. Um, and then if you look at, you know, things like our, our inbound TEU volume index, Shippers keep sending volumes to, to Oakland. It's not that easy to, to reroute cargo if you don't have, again, that flexibility of, of the top you know, 100, but specifically the top 20 in borders uh, or really even the top five, having those DCs across the country, being able to do East Coast, West Coast and switch those volumes between one or the other. You know, Some of these shippers are locked in. So whether there's 35 ships there in Oakland or there's only five, uh, they're largely going to keep sending volumes there. So what we're seeing from volumes continuing to be booked to Oakland, I just think that's going to have an enormous ripple effect because, again, those ships are also calling other ports on the U.S. or in the U.S., and they're also calling some of the most congested ports over there in East Asia. Um, I feel 
a little bit better about ports like the Port of Yanchan getting cleared up within a reasonable time frame. Uh, I don't necessarily feel very good about um, Southern California ports like Los Angeles and Long Beach getting cleared up uh, quickly. I think we'll continue to see 25, 30 vessels waiting there through the remainder of peak season, which is largely the end of 2021. So, um, you know, that's one that's, that's huge. Another is the container imbalance. You know, we're looking at empty rail volumes traveling outside the U.S. And, and the, the fact that there's more empties moving into places like Los Angeles than there are loadeds um, says a lot about what's happening to U.S. exporters, but it also speaks to how ocean carriers are feeling about demand back over there in East Asia. Because ultimately, you know, 45 days to 60 days from now, those containers will be back in East Asia and able to get another load. Um, and then, you know, lastly, are the factories over there in East Asia. If the factories can't get cargo out of their factories into the port, um, you're looking at a really serious scenario from a manufacturing and production um, as far as capacity is concerned uh, for that perspective. Because if they, they just can't get these shipments you know, out, loaded in, into the port, um, you're going to see that eventually catch up to those factories. And I think uh, will, will ultimately affect the ability for U.S. importers to even manufacture those goods in the first place. So a lot of things to watch, but I think those certainly are, are some of the most concerning. Hey, Henry, why do you think, uh, you know, why are you, um, you know, more optimistic that Yanxian can clear up before Southern California? And, you know, does it have anything to do with how efficient their ports are versus ours? I didn't know this. I think I'd read it uh, just the other day. There was like a 24 second per container unload time, uh, I, I, I think in Shanghai, and then it's about 48 in LA Long Beach. Like, why is there such a disparity in efficiency? Um, well, between the U.S. and China, let's just start there. I think, um, you know, it's it's got a lot to do with the government. Um, it's got a lot to do with the communist government um, and the, their ability to allocate resources as necessary and really come in and, and say, OK, we're going to execute in this way. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't like it, um, you know, we'll, we'll uh, <laughs> not sure exactly what, what the, <laughs> but essentially, uh, you know, they have the ability to come in and really get things done again. The, the way they can really scale uh, labor and infrastructure is just unrivaled, in my opinion. So I do think, you know, whether they have to operate 24-7 um, and, and bring in extra labor, they'll do that. Um, I don't I don't know if you'll have that ability in, in Los Angeles and Long Beach because um, the, the, the union's there. Um, and then, you know, the, the difference between those two ports specifically is, you know, ports like Long Beach have a, quite a bit of, you know, autonomous, um, you know, vehicles kind of moving uh, containers around. Um, and, and, you know, they just have, uh, different ways of approaching, um, the same process. So that's why you see, um, you know, some discrepancy there. And then, you, you know, ultimately have, you know, more volume, um, depending on which ships are coming in, which ocean carriers, you know, they don't call both ports equally. Um, they, they call, you know, one or the other, or they call, um, you know, one or one or the other with a, a, a number of other carriers um, and kind of co-share space on those vessels. So, um, yeah, that's why you kind of see a, a discrepancy there. But um, I do do feel like, you know, Yanchan could get cleared up quicker than, than you know, the U.S. boards. Well, that would certainly be celebratory news uh, for everybody in our industry on both sides of the ocean. All right, Henry, thank you so much for joining me. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get you on here. We'll have you on back again soon. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. All right, uh, Anthony, we got two minutes. I think we can hit this uh, Fannie Mae house per home purchase sentiment index. So we'll do the good, the bad, and the Anthony. Uh, I'll do the good, and then you do the bad and the Anthony. So <laughs> if I can get back up to my notes, we'll go to the good. I had four of the six 
you know, sub-sub-indices between this index increased month over month. Most notably, the components related to personal finance. Consumers reported a much greater sense of job security and improved household income compared to the same time last year. Should be, you know, it's, it's fair. It should be assumed that we feel better now than we did in May of last year. But in any case, it's positive. That's right. And consumers just being in a good position. So I think for the bad, of course, we have to look at those components. So you mentioned that there are four out of the six components really looking great. One of those that not looking great is consumers thinking that if now is the right time or a good time to make a purchase. And so we saw that now at historic lows for the Fannie Mae index, I think it was right at 35% of uh, the overall measure. So it's really showing that Americans are kind of being deterred and not that there is a lack of wanting to buy a house, but kind of deterrence of the current conditions to buy a house. And so those existing homes, hard to kind of come by. Those back backups and uh, new homes, those increased prices for materials, although lumber came down a nice little 20%, it doesn't really mean much when it's up 300% yeah. year over year. So right. that's a big, bad part of it all. Any any takeaway from you on that one? Any uh, any Anthony from that? We just I mean the the bad is is pretty bad. I could see yeah. that from Anthony, but yeah, the Anthony I I think is oh to me um, that this is going to be one of those areas that's just been exacerbated. So miss miss uh, a different amount of or inappropriate amount of supply to demand, and that's been something that we've been watching since 2018, 2019, and this is just kind of exacerbated and showed out altogether throughout 2021. Yeah, I mean, it would be great to see that trend reverse next month. Again, 35%. That's the lowest we've ever had on record. I think it's about two decades that they've been doing the survey. About 35% think it's a good time to buy. That's very low. Yeah. All right. That's been it for episode 74 of Great Quarter, guys. We'll be back next week, same time, 3 o'clock. See you then.